Coming up on Back in My Play, I'm joined by John Lineman of Digital Foundry and the creator of the Digital Foundry Retro Series. And John, I apologize if I got your last name incorrect there again, but the important thing is that this was an awesome episode. It was so much fun talking with John because he's just been doing incredible work on that Digital Foundry Retro Series and just really being able to break down the crazy things developers were able to do to get games that shouldn't really have been possible on certain consoles got them up and running and comparing ports between different consoles and even between the PCs and the restraints and the compromises that needed to be made. We also get to talk about some cool new mods that are going to be coming and that are available for you out there if you do want to get the best experience when it comes to your retro games. And it was just a lot of fun to be able to hang out with John and talk about this stuff. I know you're really going to enjoy it. So let's get right into the interview with John. Hello, welcome back to Back in My Play. This is a crazy episode that we have for you this week because this is actually being recorded on the day that Digital Foundry is talking all about the the specs for the new Xbox Scorpio. But instead, I got John from Digital Foundry and from uh, just the incredible Digital Foundry retro video series to talk about old video game hardware and how games (laughs) used to look. John, how are you? Pretty good, Kevin. Good to be here. <laughs> uh, and 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 like like I said, if you haven't checked out these uh, videos, you can just go on YouTube, and I'll link to them in the show notes. But I've been a huge fan of these, and it's actually something that I've talked with a lot of people that I've had on the show about because what you've been doing on this channel is actually going back into games from like 10, 15, 20 years ago and and uh, like analyzing their performance and the trickery that these developers made to allow them to. Like, be really impressive on the limited hardware that they had back in the day. Yeah, that's always kind of been what I wanted to do with it, really, because we see a lot of retro talk these days, especially mm-hmm. in 8 and 16-bit era, but I kind of wanted to focus on the broad spectrum and kind mm-hmm. of, you know, focus a little bit on what those developers were doing. Because, I mean, we, I think it's easy to forget just how impressive some of the programming techniques were from back in the day when you had such constraints to work in. Yeah, it was like... Uh, Again, the maybe I guess you can go watch these videos. We'll we'll be talking about them a little bit, but um, I you mentioned this is what you wanted to do. What was like? What was your pitch to be able to put the time and and effort into putting these these videos together? Was it something along the lines of like, you know, as I can tell with this show, like there is an audience out there for people that want to like hear about the history of these retro games and just kind of what makes them so fascinating and interesting, even on a technical uh, side of things. Yeah, so the thing about that is I'd been wanting to do retro videos for a while, but uh, my boss was kind of like, I don't really think there's much of an audience for that stuff, which, you know, obviously there's a huge audience for Mm. it. And it kind of came about when we were preparing, we were expecting some sort of Shenmue 3 news. And he was like, <laughs> maybe, we, maybe we should go back and do like a video on Shenmue. Mm-hmm. And so I put together that first video on Shenmue like back in last February or something. And then Was we it that sat, long ago? Well, yeah, wow. we sat on it. We sat on it for like four months. Oh, okay. Didn't do anything with it, right? Like it just sat on my hard drive and I was like, oh, that's a pretty cool video, but we never had a real reason to put it up. But then... Mm-hmm. Before I went to E3 last year, I guess, I was like, uh, I just did my spare time. I did a very quick five-minute video on Quake for the Sega Saturn. That's right. Which I was really curious about. So I I got a copy of that for my Saturn and spent like the weekend playing it. And I was like, man, this is really impressive for what it's doing. And um, so I just basically made a quick video, gave it to Richard, and was like, "Uh, you want to put this online? And he was like, all right, sure, why not? So we did and got a decent number of views. So we're like, let's roll out the Shenmue video next. And again, enough people watched it where he was like, all right, you can kind of do this regularly. <laughs> yeah, and if you guys haven't seen the the video that you put together for for Quake, again, it's just, it's really fascinating just because, especially when you're, you're looking at that Sega Saturn Frankenstein hardware that's right. in there and how it's kind of just being tricked into doing pseudo 3d type stuff um what was that developer again that developer that did like a, a couple of those first person shooters on the saturn wasn't it just like one company that did a couple of them yeah it was a lobotomy software that's right magical they did stuff. like yeah they did like three games for the saturn they did uh power slave or exhumed right first which was an original game they did quake and they did duke nukem 3d and all of those games were running on their own custom 
engine basically that was kind of handcrafted i want to say for the saturn yes yes and this is and a reason why uh you know first I, I wanted to get you on the show because i think you know the audience for back my play needs to go and, and check out this series just because it is like it's super fascinating it's educational and you know it allows you to kind of go back and look at some games like you know, GoldenEye is kind of like a running joke, but seeing that, you know, yeah, it kind of <laughs> did run at like 20 to 22 frames per second. Man, you didn't think it did, but it totally did. Um, yep. <laughs> yeah. And, and again, it's like on the, like the the way that I kind of look at this, and it's something that um, I did a couple episodes ago was the uh, episode on console launch memories and talking about, you know, the oh, yeah. memories that the, that the audience had. And like that was always one of the big things with these launches is that we were always going to get these big leaps. We had these big spreads and whether it was like Nintendo Power or official PlayStation Magazine where you got an in-depth look at this in- insane silicone that's going to be inside this like $200, $300 box. Um, oh, yeah. But, you know, again, it's just very ironic that I, I didn't realize this when we scheduled this, but it was going to be the same time that you guys were going to be doing like a big rollout of, of Scorpio footage <laughs> with Microsoft's new new upgraded uh, Xbox, Xbox One. But I don't like I, I wanted to ask you and kind of get a little bit of, of your history as as well with this stuff. Um, you know, like I mentioned, we had a lot of yeah. listeners that got really excited about you know, their memories of these these launches, like seeing the incredible things this new hardware was going to be able to do. Was that something that always fascinated you back then too, is just kind of, you know, combing over all the details you could get before a launch? Yeah, absolutely. That was, you know, when I was a kid, I was really obsessed with just parallax backgrounds, you know, <laughs> the scrolling. Like, totally. I thought that was the coolest thing ever. Just So when you see, I guess, some of the early Genesis games and then, of course, like Super NES and all that, and you mm-hmm. just see the background scrolling independently, I wanted to understand how that worked or like what they were doing because it was just, it looked so cool and it gave it like depth. Yeah, man. I love that stuff. And then learning about things like the way they do like the Sega Genesis and uh, how it's kind of like they independently scroll based on the refresh of of the beam and the CRT and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Just absolutely crazy. Yeah, um, even like some of those later NES games like Kirby's Adventure and um, like we did Metal Storm on the show now seemingly a long time ago, but like they were even able to do like fake parallax scrolling on the NES at times. Exactly. like also one of the things that you mentioned the the sega genesis it was part of that like sega does what nintendo don't but you know eventually they kind of figured it out on the nes to a certain extent yeah but i mean that that was actually something i looked at um in one of the episodes recently where on the nes you notice on the few games that did parallax scrolling you never had layers scrolling over one another because they were basically It was just one layer, and they were updating different portions of the screen at different <laughs> rates. So it gave that seems the like effect, even crazier. Right? <laughs> I know it's insane how they had, how they had to manage that, but there wasn't actually real layers available to the hardware, so they had to use that trick. And that's kind of how the line scrolling feature on the Sega Genesis works. How you get mm-hmm. the cool grass effect in Sonic. Yeah, yeah. If you if you look in the background, none of those layers actually intersect with one another. They're all like independent and kind of like just stacked on top of one another in mm-hmm. a way. And that's, you know, so they're able, it takes a little bit of CPU time to do that, but they're basically able to make a really cool 3D effect with, even though they're only using like one or two parallax layers for real. So this so, was, were, were you, were you like someone that needed to have a Sega Genesis due to this back, back in the day? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I was really, I was really into the Genesis actually at the time. <laughs> Of course, I mean, I played plenty of Super NES and all that, of course, but uh, the Genesis was kind of my jam. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, the more and more I do this show and I allow myself to dip into that library more and more, like, it is, it's not that, like, 
there's there's definitely some some games on the Genesis. Not when you put them like next to each other. If there was a port to, that went to both, but there are some uh, console exclusives on the Genesis that are still like super cool, unique, and just didn't really have a home on something like the Super Nintendo. Yeah, for sure. And even with the games that appeared on both, what was fascinating is a lot of them were made with the Genesis kind of first in mind, it seems. Mm -hmm. So when you would bring it over to the Super NES, which has a lower resolution, you would get um, kind of stretched sprites, right? So like you play something like Earthworm Jim, and Earthworm Jim in the Super NES version is fatter than uh, he is in the Genesis version because the sprite was kind of drawn for the Genesis resolution. So it was very much like the N6 or not the N64. It was like the Xbox 360 to the PS3, like build for what I guess at that time, you know, the market was saturated with a lot of Genesis stuff, at least here in the States. And then, you know, it's a little bit easier to move up to a more powerful console than to necessarily have to move down. Exactly. Exactly. I'm always getting, Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, after, I, after like it, it was just like something that has been coming up a lot lately. Um, have Have you picked up a Nintendo Switch? I have, right on launch. Okay, yeah, I got I got one too. I'm 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 still I like Ed Zelda's good. Um, but yeah, <laughs> like, like I'm I'm firm believer that Zelda might be game of the year type of thing. But um, oh yeah, like that seems to be a lot of the discussion right now. Is uh, it, it's really weird that people are almost um, craving slash demanding that. We now see games that are featured on much more powerful consoles like the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One being downscaled with things like Overwatch being being brought up, things like um, even like Doom being brought up. Oh, yeah, we'd really love to play Doom on the Switch. It's like uh, that might be a little <laughs> bit of a bigger jump than what we're used to expecting from, from previous you know hardware console competitions and generations. Yeah, I mean the the switch is pretty cool, but it's you know it's a portable first, right? Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I like I I'm I'm still on the fence about how I feel about that thing. It's literally sitting on a table re- ready to get sold right now because I played through the game that it has, which is Zelda, um, the you know big console exclusive. Uh, I hear you though. But we'll, we'll we'll see. We I mean we'll we'll get to that in a little bit. We'll be able to judge it a little bit uh, more fairly. But um, I, I mean I mentioned the the series that you were putting together. Like one of, some of my favorite episodes have been like Half Life, like Half Life. Looking at that on the PlayStation oh, Two, yeah, of course. Oh yeah, and that's like how my my roommate in college. That's how he played through Half Life because we were all and this is he was playing this while we were all playing through Half Life Two on our PCs. He was like, "Oh, I want to see what this Half-Life <laughs> thing is all about." So he went down to, you know, GameStop, which I think was still an EB Games at the time, and picked up Half-Life for the the PS2. And it was oddly around the same time where I started really messing around with the Dreamcast and getting right. and tracking down that, you know, on uh, on the you know the internet, you could find a copy of of like basically finished Dreamcast a uh, Dreamcast yep. version of Half-Life. Um, so I, I want to talk to you a little bit about about those two because if people don't know like the story of Half Life on on the Dreamcast, um, I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on on that and kind of if you were able to kind of yeah, dig yeah, up any of weird course. stuff with it. So I mean, first off, one of my weird fascinations has been like ports of PC games from that era to consoles because totally. the PC was a lot more powerful mm-hmm. in terms of what it could do. So trying to cram all that into the limited memory of a console. It's kind of a big job. Mm-hmm. And so obviously, you know, I mean, Half-Life for Dreamcast was announced, uh, I don't know, 2000 maybe, even earlier than that, possibly 99. I can't remember. But I guess it was kind of being worked on throughout the life of the system and was basically finished. And I think they sent it out to different magazines for testing near yeah. the end of it, which is, I think that's where the build that's on the internet actually comes from. Like there One is of those a review, like there's a magazine yeah. review that was done and printed. Exactly. And I think that was all based on that pretty much finished version. Mm-hmm. Now there could have still been some extra optimization to be done in there, no doubt, but <laughs> for, for all intents and purposes, yeah, yeah, that's the big one, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, the game itself was pretty much finished. It just, 
doesn't really run very well, I think we can agree. And the loading times are not great. I mean, the Quake, Quake engine didn't work very well on the Dreamcast, outside of, I guess, Quake 3 Arena, which is pretty good on there. But, yeah. Uh, you know, there was other ports like Soldier of Fortune and everything that were Quake 2 engine. They Oh, my God. Run, oh, it's the worst, Also, man. really bad load times on that, if I remember. Yeah, they broke every level up into, like five chunks or something like that yeah. and every chunk took upwards of 90 seconds to load Jeez. it was insane it was a really bad port I, and but I, half-life wasn't that bad <laughs> yeah and I, I like i i remember like if we're talking about consoles that were basically built for really good pc ports it was it was the dreamcast like it was set up with whether it was you know vga out it was built off you yep. know windows ce in terms of the the, the platform and like still it it was not able to well keep in mind though that windows ce was just like an optional thing i mean the the actual dreamcast development libraries that most games used were like created it was a special sega in-house mm. development kit wow. windows ce was only there for some games and it was designed to kind of make it easier to port over to the system mm-hmm. but it had sort of a performance cost so if you did make a windows ce game you were almost always going to end up with lower performance oh geez i mean look at sega rally 2 for instance i don't Mm -hmm. know why but for whatever reason they ported that over and they used windows ce to do it and the frame rate is bad it's not stable 60 frames per second like the arcade right Mm -hmm. but then you have like virtual on oratorio tangram and then um like virtue fighter 3 tb and those types of games and there's zero performance problem there so it's just like the libraries just weren't very good so you ended up with some pretty bad ports when they used windows ce it's it's still yeah it's still like things like that and having like the keyboard and the mouse and the vga box and and like even like the vmu still continues to make the oh the dreamcast just like one of the craziest weirdest most favorite platforms out there oh i know it was an amazing thing at the time it was really uh it's a great box and it wasn't there like also on on Half Life on Dreamcast? Like I remember running into this when I was playing it, but there was like a severe, like VMU save issue where like the size of the save would just get insane. Oh yeah, that that's actually that is a problem with Half Life. I mean, I assume that would have been fixed, but yeah, every time you save the game, the file size increases, and eventually it's too big to fit on a VMU, so you can't actually save any longer. Jeez. It- <laughs> Okay, so maybe yeah, maybe it wasn't ready for for release, but yeah, that was just that that's one of those amazing things in the history of games like where like you said they they had copies going out for review. They even had I remember this being a thing back when I was getting back into it, but like there were tons of copies of the strategy guide out there. Like you could get the oh, Half-Life yeah, strategy right. guide for the Dreamcast. That. Um and god, what a what a, what a weird console. Um in a, in a crazy port, but like you, you have done a couple of things. Like you mentioned Shenmue uh, one and and two that you did for yep. for the Dreamcast. Like you know, when you go back and look at these games, like like I guess this is a two parter. But um, when you go back and look at these games, like it, it seems like the the Dreamcast just was one of those consoles where they're able to just really squeeze every last bit out of the internals. It seemed to have been a a, a rather not easy, but um, a manageable console to to program for, and also, like, what were some of the crazier programming techniques that you saw on those those two games on on the Dreamcast? Well, I mean, for me, what really impresses is you got to think about how little memory the Dreamcast had. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think its total was twenty four megabytes, <laughs> and so maybe sixteen megabytes of system memory. I guess you had, and then right. the VRAM and all that, but uh, that's not really a lot to work with. And Yu Suzuki and them were trying to basically build a large world, like filled with tons of people wandering around and mm-hmm. just lots of items everywhere that were really detailed for the time. And I think like being able to cram all that in and actually have it load in a reasonable amount of time uh, was pretty impressive, especially considering like back then, like the working environments and the tools that they had to use and the way that the game was planned out. I mean, they basically use like an Excel sheet to track bugs. They're just like looking through like these massive lists and it's mm-hmm. all, they were kind of playing fast and loose with it. I'm kind of surprised that it got finished at all when you look at that kind of stuff. I mean, it was really, really complicated. Or even how nuts the they were to even try to attempt that on the Saturn. Oh yeah. That's just 
complete madness like <laughs> to think that they could do that on the Saturn. Uh, I mean, you saw the footage, so it's <laughs> clearly they were they were trying, but man, look like nightmare I, creatures. I know, right? Like, <laughs> oh yeah, like some of what they were trying to do with the Saturn, though, is it's like using the infinite planes feature on VDP two, which is the second graphics processor chip, mm-hmm. where you can basically do like kind of like a mode seven plane, you know, where it's just a big flat surface with sort of detail and texture on it. They kind of they were going to make that basically the ground in the world, and that's almost free to render that out. Mm-hmm. So you already have like a whole area that you can wander around, and then you just have to build structures and stuff on top of that. So it kind of I think they were trying to exploit some of those features of the Saturn, and it probably wouldn't have worked. But hey, <laughs> but before we go back to to Shenmue uh, and the Dreamcast, it, it, well, again, it, it kind of seems from from some of the initial stuff that you that you did with the series but also just in how you talk about it it seems like the Saturn might be the most fascinating console in terms of like programming for you and how like the developers were able to get around all of its weird constraints yeah i definitely think it is one of the more fascinating consoles i mean you know stuff like playstation 3 is difficult to work on no doubt but mm-hmm. the saturn was just so esoteric in its design i mean you basically had two cpus and two graphics chips to work on. And, you you know, you're doing... Sega provided some libraries, but a lot of games were programmed using, like, assembly code, I'd imagine. Mm-hmm. And they're just trying to make all these things work together it, it properly. was seems like an incredibly difficult task. And so that's why I think a lot of ports back then weren't especially good to this, on the Saturn, just because, you know, if you're working on the PlayStation, which is so simple in comparison, I mean taking the time to actually figure out how to use all four of those processors together, mm-hmm. not so easy. So I think they would just kind of offload what they could over to like a single CPU and make it work even if it wasn't optimal. So, which is why there's such a gulf between the really impressive games and the games that are kind of ugly, right? Because the Saturn has its fair share of pretty ugly looking games. Oh yeah, for sure, so, for sure. Um, and Oddly enough, like one of the reasons why I always coveted the the Saturn was there was like two main reasons. It was one, it was when they were getting to the point where, you know, they were packing in, you know, three pretty solid games with that. I think it was Virtual Fighter Two, it was Virtual Cop, and it was one other game that I think they were packing in with it as well at the time. But that caused those games to significantly drop in price. So like my local Funko land, like you could get those games for, for a couple bucks and oh yeah, like your hurdle was really being able to afford the Saturn itself. So like that was a huge draw for me having like Sega's arcade games on this piece of piece of hardware. And at the time I only had a Nintendo 64, which had really like, I love Duke Nukem 64, but it, was kind of somewhat tamed down a, a little bit to you know play nice with with Nintendo and how they were very kid friendly at the time. But one of my big draws for that Saturn hardware was Duke Nukem 3D and it was Quake. Like that was oh yeah oddly why I wanted to pick up that that hardware because it looked like at least from screenshots at least from what I was going off at the time in GamePro magazine like it looked like. What I wanted to play, even though it they're not maybe the best versions to play out there. Yeah, I still I actually think there's still value in them though, just because uh, like Quake, for instance, just has such a gritty look to it, and mm-hmm. and it's kind of has a look and feel that's different from the PC version, so it kind of stands out on its own. And then Duke Nukem 3D was, I mean, I guess at the time it was the only true 3D version of it available. Because you did, right. have, you still had you had two D enemies and weapons and all that, but the mm-hmm. actual environments were really three D. So it wasn't like the fake uh, techniques used in the PC original. So it kind of it had a different feel to it as a result that I think really still stands up today. Yeah, and it had like system link like multiplayer oh, yeah, that's and crazy stuff. stuff. And like and not like I I didn't know anyone that had a Saturn, but that was still one of the selling points to me. Unfortunately, as God, I was probably 12 at the time that it came out, so I was not necessarily... No, I was even younger than that. No, yeah, I was probably 12 when it came out on the the Saturn when it was just not really a possibility unless I traded in my N64, which 
was not going to be happening at that at that time period. I don't think my parents would even let me pull that off. So, <laughs> um, yeah, like like that was that was always always really cool. And again, that's one of my favorite videos. Is just looking at Duke Nukem across platforms because. You know, you brought this up uh, as well. I, I believe I remember with with Duke Nukem sixty four. Like one of oh, my yeah. favorite parts of that game is, you know, again, even if you didn't have friends over, like you could just set up three bots and then you could still go into multiplayer. And I would just play that endlessly. I played so oh, I much of that. <laughs> <laughs> bots were awesome back then. That was completely. That was still like a new thing, right? Yeah. I mean. So it was fun. <laughs> it was it was awesome and setting up those those trip mines and just getting like the grenade launcher and putting the difficulty at something that wasn't too bad where I could just right, right. destroy these dudes <laughs> for for 15 minutes or something like that oh, was, was an fun. absolute yeah, blast. Absolutely. Um well, like uh, sorry, going back to to Shenmue because I that's what I do is I go on tangents like that. Um it's I, okay. <laughs> I I mean again, you you looked at Shenmue 1 which is like I, I still have a soft spot for for Shenmue, and um, I, I believe that it is still unique, especially for that time period. You brought up how, you know, they wanted to put all these little details in in the environments, have these little stores in, which um, is even kind of more. Like I just finished Akuza Zero a couple of days ago. Oh, um, nice! That's a good one. And it's and it's so good, especially going like from Shenmue's eighty six Japan even though it's small town going to Yakuza zeros, I think it's 1988. Uh, yeah. Something like that. It's like 1988, like Kapuki Joe. And, uh, I guess, uh, what was the other city that were, that there were not Kyoto, uh, the other one, Osaka. Um, Osaka, yeah. So that, that, that was like, just like looking at where, how far <laughs> they were able to go in, <laughs> I guess, what it was like 18 years or something like that, or, or six, 17 years. Um, sure. <laughs> but, I guess I guess my question is like what when you kind of looked at at Shenmue one and Shenmue two like one of the things that you were able to point out is just like there was an insane leap in what they're able to do just from one to two right oh yeah for sure I mean they kind of gave up of some of the finer details in Shenmue one I think were sacrificed but two like the scale that they went for is just insane like even today. At the end of near the end of the game, I guess in disc three. That's no spoilers. No spoilers. No, no story spoilers. We can do location. Story spoilers. spoilers. We're just doing location spoilers. I might want to play this at some point. (laughs) Okay. Well, you're in a very large building, all right. Mm -hmm. And basically, every single door in the building opens, and you can go inside. And they kind of use this like randomization procedural like furniture placement technology mm-hmm. so that they they didn't have to go in there and place everything by hand their engine did that for them but so you basically have this massive building filled of tons of rooms and there's not really anything in most of those rooms but you can go in them and everything's placed as you might expect like desks on the wall bed over here in the corner and it just gave you this sense of being inside of a, a lived-in place mm-hmm. that really hadn't been seen before at the time and you don't really see it that often either today where they just like open up an entire building just for the heck of it. Yeah, and it's, it's almost a novelty. It's almost something yeah, that it is a novelty like, for sure. <laughs> it's just, you know, too much, too much work. I think maybe the only place that we, we almost kind of see it, um, maybe not to that scale, but at least in terms of the details is still what, you know, Naughty Dog is able to do with last of us and like most recently oh, in Uncharted yeah. four, it's just insane. Yeah, that kind of detail is nuts. <laughs> um, I, I also wanted to ask you, like, along those same lines, like, those were two games that were able to really squeeze out a lot of of that that hardware. Again, especially if you're hooking that thing up and you're looking at it like 480p, like, it's a really good looking game. Although it, you know, it chugs when it needs to. Um, yeah, a little bit here and there. A little bit, a little bit here and there, especially like in in, in two. But I, I wanted to ask you like now that you've been looking at all these games you've been looking in depth in all of these consoles and in how that hardware is is set up like are there are there certain games or certain like console game relationships that you found have just been like peanut butter and jelly like they just worked so well together they were able to squeeze every last bit of that power out of that console like to a really impressive extent oh that's kind of a tough one actually uh, one of the ones that comes to mind, though, kind of uh, is the next episode I'm going to do, actually, is Metal Gear Solid 2 on the PlayStation 2. Okay. Because 
you look at that and um, what they're what they're doing with the system is kind of exploiting the unique hardware of the PlayStation 2 with the really high fill rate on the GPU, just pushing lots and lots of effects, and they're mm-hmm. doing it all at 60 frames per second. And even though there were games that came later in the system's life that I think probably displayed more impressive visuals, they didn't always do it at the frame rate that Metal Gear Solid 2 did. Mm-hmm. And just with that kind of refinement, and I feel like that type of game is really the really what I like for showing what a piece of hardware can do. And I mean, you know, of course there's stuff on Dreamcast like that. Uh, I would say uh, Tecmo did it with uh, Dead or Alive 2. Yes. Since the Dreamcast was really, really well suited to arcade-style games because the memory limitations were less of a problem, right? So you could focus on these smaller environments like that. But they put so much geometry into that game. I mean, the size of the maps there and just the detail on the fighters. I mean, there was nothing Mm. else like it at the time. It looked amazing. It was that absolutely kind of insane. Is, yeah. Oh man, absolutely. Yeah, and, and I, then I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, go go ahead. I know. I, I was just like, again, this is kind of just continues to to have things pop into to my head. But like, you know, most recently, like I, I brought up Naughty Dog and stuff, like what they're able to do with, yeah, you know, potentially like the relationship that they have with those those manufacturers. But um, like, it's it's cool that you bring up, you know, a Konami game. They'd had a really good, uh, you know, relationship with. With Sony at the time, but a lot of times oh, yeah. these games that we see are the ones that are able to have such a close connection with that hardware, or they're able to go into these companies and get the support that they need, like you know what uh, companies like Unreal did on on the Xbox 360. But um, it, it's cool that you bring up. I was just saying, like it's cool that you bring up Konami, just because they didn't necessarily. Like it's not first party, like it's third party right, stuff, and they're right. still able to squeeze all that stuff out, makes it even more impressive. Konami was amazing for that back in the day, though. I mean, so many games they were releasing at the time, and they were always kind of pushing the limits of what you could do on the hardware. I think. I mean, that Konami is long gone, obviously. But <laughs> <laughs> you you weren't blown away by Bomberman on the the Switch? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. I don't even think like I, that was in-house Konami, but whatever. No, I th- I went right back to Saturn Bomberman, to be honest. Yeah, it's a way to do it. If you can find eight, con- what is it? Is it eight player or it's seven player? It's, it's, I think it's 10 player. Oh, it's 10 player. That's right. Okay. Yeah, it's two. Yeah, yeah you got to get those connectors to do t- five yeah, players yeah, out of yeah, both yeah. control it's like ports. crazy. That is super duper crazy. Um, Yeah. Okay. So now I know notice that you also been looking at hardware because we're in a weird world where like we've talked about a couple times like there is an audience for this stuff whether it be like the the nt or with the nes classic edition we're seeing hardware that's dedicated towards retro games to a much uh, a much better uh much better quality versus like those genesis things that we've seen in like targets for for years, these seem to be getting pretty damn close to being perfect or like with the NT, like they're literally putting in hundreds of dollars of development and hardware oh, yeah. to match the CPU and the, the like to replicate the CPU and the performance of of that old hardware. So I'm just kind of curious, you know, just your, your general thoughts on, on this hardware and kind of where things are going or anything that really impressed you out of the, you know, the classic edition or the NT. Yeah, well, for the NT Mini, what really impressed me, I mean, what Kevin Kevtris Horton was the guy that's been working on this FPGA mm-hmm. for so long. And I think FPGAs have kind of, kind of reached the point now where it's a little more affordable to work with. And I don't know how yet how it's going to work yet with some of the more advanced processors in the future. But for now, to me, it seems like that's kind of the future of hardware preservation, so to speak, mm-hmm. where you're basically emulating the hardware using other hardware, right, instead of the software solution. But what really is awesome about that is the ability to still play all those on original displays. Like you can load it up on a Sony PVM if you want, Mm -hmm. or you can also do digital HDMI out. So it kind of lets you have it both ways, right? And that's that's very nice. Plus the support for uh, all those other 8-bit consoles is crazy to me. Like yeah. Playing Ma- Master System, Game Gear, you know, ColecoVision, Game Boy, all that on one machine. 
that's that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, and, and it shows. I, I I think it's still super early days uh, with with this stuff, like with what they're oh, yeah. able to do with the NT Mini. It's it is it is crazy. Like even on the the NES Classic, like they're getting Super Nintendo stuff and Genesis stuff running on on that hardware, just because like it's not. It's not perfect. It's not like what the NT is doing, but for right, right. Just you know, I, I bring this thing over to my cousin's house. They have no. They're like, wow, it's perfect. It plays and runs perfect. It sounds perfect, even though it's like kind of just you know, eighty-five, ninety percent of the way there. Yeah, I mean the the NES Classic Edition is kind of it's not an amazing piece of hardware by any means, but it's it kind of like triggers that nostalgia in people, and it's got like a really cool look. So I think that kind of it shows that retro gaming can, can kind of target both types of audiences. Totally. Whereas like the analog NT and the NT Mini are for really hardcore people that want to spend a lot of money on retro games, but they want perfect accuracy. Whereas the NES Classic Edition is like, well, here's this easy, friendly way to relive the games you loved as a kid. And mm-hmm. they're going to look like what you probably remember, even if they're not completely accurate. Those people, most people that play them, won't really care as long as it feels like what they remember, right? And that's kind of what Nintendo, I think, was going for there. And I'm I'm looking forward if if you want, end up getting uh, a look at the uh, Jaleco multi card. I'm, I'm going to be curious to see what you think of that once you're able to crack open one of those like multi cards oh, yeah. because that looks like Let's take a look at that, right? It looks like a, <laughs> like just a, another market that they're going to be able to just. You know, smell out because I, I I was talking about this um, last week on the Mega Man Six episode, but like it just seems like this this market is just like early days, but it is super hungry for stuff like these physical releases. Like they just hold a much higher value than God downloading the same stupid ROM from Virtual Console again and having it look worse on this hardware than it did on last hardware. Yeah, and I think it's kind of just. It's almost like a continuation of the the big revival of vinyl records, right? Like people kind of looking back exactly. and they want they want that tangible object. And you know, obviously, there's arguments that I totally get to like declutter your life, and this does not help with that at all. But <laughs> but if it's a multi card, you know, maybe I can pick it, up one of these. And exactly, you, know. you can kind of you know you still have something physical there, right? You're not tied to any internet service where. Things could kind of go away there on you, but <laughs> exactly. I, you know, I look forward to the day where I can throw my copies of Bases Loaded One and Two in a River and just have my copy of the Super <laughs> Retro Twenty Two and One. That's all I want. Exactly, exactly. And honestly, you know, if you if you're just looking for to play these games accurately at this point, I mean, there's other stuff being like the SD card reader for Sega Saturn, for instance. I mean, I don't have one of those yet, but. It's fascinating that you could basically load up Sega Saturn games on an SD card and just yep. plug it into the system, and you get perfect accuracy. You're playing the game as it was intended, but and not you're worrying doing about those so, terrible, like fragile drives. Exactly, or the discs. Those, those drives aren't getting any younger, and then the discs, of course, that's who knows what's going to happen there. So the main point is that you you'll still be able to play these games and it should be easy enough to maintain the hardware if you're using a solid state thing like a sd card Mm -hmm. uh, to enjoy it for many years to come yeah that is fingers crossed totally and that's again one of the things that i i love talking about on this show is just what we're able to do with this old hardware and like sometimes the secrets that were in there all along like with the you know, old Super Famicoms in like Genesis having the ability to just output beautiful RGB signals. And we just, oh, like, yeah, here in the States, we just didn't have the cables and nope. we didn't have the standards on the televisions to be able to do that. But like now, without any modification, like I just buy a cable and hook that cable into a frame meister and I have like an incredible picture on a 4K monitor. It's nuts. Yeah, that's the thing. It's, when I moved over to Europe, actually, it kind of took me by surprise there to see, like, oh, yeah, RGB SCART and everything is just kind of a normal thing, right? Like, you just even today, if you just go to an electronics store over here, you'll still see, like, bins of SCART cables mm-hmm. there that kind of support the older analog-style video equipment. So everybody here was used to RGB. But outside of, of Europe, I feel like it was kind of a mystery. I certainly didn't know anything about it back in the day. 
So it is amazing to think that, oh, yeah, it was, you know, these consoles almost, it's almost like we could upgrade them once we get a little bit older and wiser. It, well, it's, <laughs> I, I look at it this way. Like we got a, a decent trade off where they had the worst like frame per second standard in Europe. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and we got, and, and like we got better frame rates, they got better resolution. Dude, when I saw 50 hertz for the first time, like real 50 hertz. <laughs> is it that hertz, weird? <laughs> dude, the flicker is so bad. It looks, it it feels like it's going to like chop your eyeballs up or something. Like it's like constant obvious strobing. <laughs> it's really unbelievable that it was ever in like an accepted standard. Like I just can't understand how that was okay. But <laughs> I'm so sorry for all of our listeners in, in Europe. I, I had no idea. No idea. I still don't really have an idea of what your pain is like, just because you know that beautiful NTSC standard has been uh, it's been spoiling me for a long time. And I think you can experience it in North America if you have like a Sony PVM, because most of those seem to do both fifty. Oh, and they 60 jump between. Hertz. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So you can you can do real fifty hertz if you want, but uh, well, you <laughs> yeah. probably don't want to. <laughs> it's like yeah, I'm gonna pull up my VHS copy of the Matrix tonight and watch that instead of my Blu-ray version. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> don't don't want to do that. Uh, okay, so this is again, this is like kind of one of the cool things is how we're able to bring new life into this 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 hardware you mentioned the sd cards that we're able to and this is something that they're playing around with on the dreamcast although there's kind of oh, a, yeah. a weird story with the guy that was making those with with that i get to check back in but um like have there been any mods that have stood out to you that that seem like really good in investments for this old hardware if you want to hold on to those old consoles but just want to be able to play it the best way possible in in 2017 have, have there been any mods that stood out to you Mm, no specific console mods that really i mean besides the saturn sd stuff and that that kind of development i think the, yeah, the old standby up. is still uh the everdrives yeah t- like totally. uh those those are awesome i mean especially for a system like say the turbo graphics the pc engine mm-hmm. where getting those hue cards is very very expensive in a lot of cases and prohibitively expensive i think so if you just want to play those games Having like an EverDrive is is definitely the way to go, and that gets you around the region lock too, because you know that guy oh, yeah. put that switch on there, so you don't have to deal with the different pin uh, pin yep. uh, lineups of the the different regions. Yeah, exactly. If you wanted to import uh, Japanese games and just play them straight without modding your Turbo Graphics, uh, it wouldn't work because of the pin. But the EverDrive obviously solves that for you. Okay, I'm That's looking. Great. I'm looking up this. I'm, I haven't really looked at any of this stuff at all, but this SD card mod for the Saturn just looks like it's like an EverDrive. This looks perfect. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like EverDrive for the Saturn. Oh, geez. Built into the Saturn itself. Looks like I'm going to be spending some money this week. Um, <laughs> but, you know, again, and it just, I, I'm a full believer. If, the, if there is a company out there that allows you to pick up these games, even if it is on like a virtual console, a PSN, an Xbox Live, I guess they don't call it Xbox Live Arcade, but I guess the marketplace now, like you by all means should go and and repurchase this stuff. It's like the oh yeah, you know again, buddy Peter Brown over at at GameSpot where he, he just spent like I think I heard he spent like six hundred bucks on Panzer Dragoon Saga. Oh yeah, I heard that on the Bombcast. Six hundred was... bones, Peter. Come on, like <laughs> I hope I hope you get some mileage out of like Dude. a feature or something. Like right off some of that expense. It's a good game, but $600 good, man. I don't know. That's uh, <clears throat> right. And it's, and it's like, I, you know, give me a way to play that on current hardware or, you know, allow me to give you 20 bucks to be able to play that somewhere today. I'm all for, but like, if you have games, whether it be, you know, now we're looking at former Hudson stuff, that's getting harder to find until, you know, Konami wants to open up the, you know, garage door and let us buy that stuff again. Like this is stuff that you don't really have an option to buy if it's like three hundred dollars on eBay. That's not an option. That's like that just means it's impossible. So I I see some good gray area with things like the EverDrive and things like this SD card reader for the Saturn. And now we're getting into territories where it's joked about, but it's like very real. Where these optical discs are not going to, oh, yeah. they're fragile as hell, and they're not going to last. You know, the next twenty years. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And then and thankfully, most consoles seem to be pushing in this direction of finding ways to play the games, either through an SD reader or emulation. Mm-hmm. But since 
today it was kind of Scorpio announcement day, it did remind me that if you look back to the original Xbox, mm-hmm. that's still a system that doesn't really have uh, any sort of security in place, like in terms right. of being able to play it in the future, right? It hasn't mm-hmm. been emulated and nobody's, I mean, I guess there's the hard drive loading you can do, but even then you're still relying on the original mechanical hard drives and the hardware there. There's no SD card reader that I know of at least right. available for Xbox. So what happens there with that with that system? I mean, how is that going to be preserved? I'm a little worried about systems like that. I think it's, I think, you know, this might, People might think I'm crazy, but I think that's going to be uh, a very collectible console in a very short time period. I believe the prices of those consoles and those games for the original Xbox are going to skyrocket because there are some really great exclusives on there. And, you know, you might not want to play Ninja Gaiden Sigma, but you might want to play Black on the, the original hardware or, you know, there's... There are some I mean, decent hardware uh, was, games on It was kind of like Dreamcast 2 in a way. I mean, you had yeah. so much SEG on there. Jet Set Radio Future, Future Gun totally. Valkyrie, OutRun 2, a perfect port of that. Yep. Uh, Crazy Taxi 3, Toe Jam and Earl 3, which, you know, whatever. Panzer Dragoon Orta. And it just kind of goes on and on and on. There's a lot of Sega. Best version of Xbox. Time Splitters Future Perfect. Well, yeah, of course. You got to have that. God, I want to <laughs> play that game so bad, but, like, I would have to buy an xbox <laughs> i don't want to buy an xbox not not anymore not after i went through all the all oh, those i had a beautiful mod chip like solderless mod chip in my oh, xbox man. in college those were the best like the x3 or whatever those things were called oh yeah i can't remember and then you but. can get into japanese games and there's a lot of good japanese titles on the xbox especially like uh from software you know yeah, the Dark Souls i know guys. i know exactly what you're thinking of I mean, besides the game where you play as the, the president, uh, yeah, the yeah. vice president or something. That's there's that which is amazing. But then they all had so had like Otogi. Do you remember that? Of course, yeah. That that was a beautiful game, and the sequel for that, and you know, games like that were really really cool. I think and exclusive to Xbox, I guess. <laughs> every time, like I go to I go to Tokyo like once or twice a year, and every time I'm always like looking in the like 15 games that they have in the original Xbox section in these <laughs> retro stores. I'm always on the lookout for Metal Wolf Chaos, and oh man. Uh, I've stumbled upon it once, and it was like two hundred and fifty dollars. It was behind glass, like at a, a trade or something like Jeez. that. And it's just like, like I really do want to play that game, but not for two hundred and fifty bucks. But is that like the most valuable Xbox game there is right now? I wonder. It's it might it's be. gotta be right because That's up there, man. You know, again, like you mentioned, from software, like they even just have people that are you know new fans of that developer that want to go back and see what they did before dark souls and, oh, yeah. and demon souls and all that stuff so and it's again it's it's kind of very <laughs> it's it it's very specific to the time period that we live in like i could see trump getting in a mech and <laughs> you know going and trying to save the world like that that it's might now be relevant <laughs> it is it is very culturally relevant because uh this is michael wilson who is the 47th president of the united states so we're just off by one Oh it's no! <laughs> pretty pretty close. Maybe the next present that we get is Metal Wolf Chaos, brought to you by it's coming to life <laughs> from software. Uh, yeah, that's just um, yeah. I want to be able to play that game at some point. And it, I didn't realize this. I'm looking just while I'm browsing this. They actually did have a demo for it in official Xbox magazine in holiday 2004. Just never made it here. Oh really? That's awesome. Huh. I'm gonna have to go and. That might be easier to get. It's just like maybe do an episode on on the demo, but I don't know if that would be worth doing. Um, Honestly, I've been I have been thinking about doing an episode uh, for DF Retro, basically focusing on those weird Japanese, sometimes Japanese exclusive, but the Japanese made Xbox games out yeah. there, like from Software's games, or even like Reckless and Reckless Two. Oh my God, which, Reckless! I was that was I, that game was yeah. on the top of my list, and it for some reason it didn't get great reviews from official Xbox magazine or like you know IGN no, Xbox, it but it had a friggin' DeLorean on the cover of it. Oh yeah, that's why and I it wanted was, it. It was technically amazing at the time. What they did with that game was really, really impressive looking. So uh, yeah, that's definitely one I kind of want to cover in the future. And the sequel, which never came out here, 
uh, was I think it supported 720p. Mm-hmm. So it's like an open world driving game on Xbox at 720p before the 360. It's just like whoa. <laughs> All right, so I'm doing some I'm doing some some research right now on on the fly, and it looks like if I wanted to get an original Xbox. A Japanese original Xbox console. We're looking at about hundred bucks on eBay. Not, well, not, not too bad. bad. Not too bad. Um, and copies of Metal Wolf Chaos are going for 200, 250 bucks. So it's like a three hundred dollar investment if you wanted to be able to play it. Whoa! Not not the I end mean, of the world. You know, it's not impossible. Yeah, that's and that's kind of the only way to do it, I suppose. That's easy enough. You know, I mean, there Without might be modding. a way to load it from the hard drive, I guess, if you modded. But oh, you totally could. Yeah. You could totally. You could yeah, totally yeah, do that. Right. Um, or maybe I'll have to, I, maybe I should see what is the, what's like the Xbox mod chip scene. And now I'm, t- I'm worried about, yeah, that was the, the executor three. That's what I had. Um, I don't know what that scene is like, and I don't want to type it into my browser now that anyone can buy my browsing history. So I'm not going to do that. Um, but yeah, maybe, maybe that's, that's something that we could do is invest 300 bucks into that and do an episode. And then judging by the current Xbox market uh that might be something you could probably resell for even more at some point yeah it's, it seems like that <laughs> all right well i'm gonna i'm gonna look into to that so the last thing i wanted to cover is that you're also looking at these games that are based off of of old properties or they're trying to really nail down the specific look of the previous version even if they're you know they got a lot of extra power and they're allowing themselves to have some liberties with what those previous consoles would have had restrictions with, specifically like you did uh, a video with with Blaster Master, and then oh yeah, coming up we got uh, Sonic Mania, which is kind of with a, a similar ilk to to that. Oh, so for I'm, sure, I'm kind of curious, like how how are you looking to to cover that stuff in the future? Is it is it going to be like an A B to kind of what it is it's trying to riff off of, or or how do you want to look at that stuff down the road? Yeah, I've been thinking about that because Sonic Mania is definitely a game I want to cover, but it might not be able to be covered in the traditional Digital Foundry way. Mm-hmm. So I'm almost kind of thinking of doing more of a retro episode kind of thing and maybe looking back at the different techniques that they've been using there and try to get an idea of whether what they're doing would actually be possible on something like the Sega Saturn, for instance. Because at first glance to me, I mean, Sonic Mania looks like a lost Saturn game in a lot of ways. Totally. You know what I mean? Which, you know, there's some 3D objects in there and it's got, you know, it's definitely pushing beyond what you could do on a Genesis. But it looks it looks pretty darn authentic to a 32-bit style game. Mm-hmm. So, you know, in that case, I would also love to actually talk with the developer on that at some point. Because it's really nice to get that sort of development insight. I think like when Shovel Knight was being developed, for instance, they put up a really nice blog kind of highlighting the ways that they limited themselves in designing the game. And that stuff is just really cool because they don't have to do that. But if they're trying to make something that sort of feels authentic to the time, I think people that are really into these games can tell and appreciate that level of uh, care. So that's cool. Yeah, I think I think I even talked about this with David D'Angelo uh, over over there at Yacht Club when, when Shovel Knight was coming out about like how they basically just shot for an NES, you know, in terms of the capabilities, but just gave themselves a couple liberties when it came to the, sure, the sound hardware and, of course, with the the graphical abilities and, you know, widescreen and all that stuff. Yeah, that's yeah, that'd be super course, cool to hear you talk about that. Yeah, no, I would love to do that. And I'm sure there's going to be other games doing it as well. Though it's interesting, you mentioned uh, Blaster Master, and that did kind of remind me. What we found on that one is that uh, most people in the UK, at least, don't really seem to be all that familiar with Blaster Master. Hmm. I was I was at EGX last week and meeting up with a bunch of people, and almost everybody's like, "Oh, I'd never heard about that game until you did a video on it." But that was that was huge in North America, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was a it was really a big, big game. game. Yeah, I mean, well, all of Sunsoft stuff here in the states yeah, were, was awesome. were really big hits, and it's also because like Sunsoft used to sponsor one of the video game shows on TV. Oh, that's right. Um, I think it was literally <laughs> just called like Video Challenge or something like that, where kids yeah. would play games against each other. They would compete, and like you know, and Konami was a big uh, supporter of this too. So they'd play like 
Turtles, the arcade game, and whoever got the highest score got to run through a maze full of like brand new <laughs> NES Genesis games. And somewhere in there, oh. there's a TurboGrafx 16. So if you can find the TurboGrafx 16, where you know the kid, you just look beforehand. You just make sure you run on the TurboGrafx, or sometimes they even had Neo Geo AESs in that friggin' thing. Like it was nuts. Oh man, that's the lottery right there. God, I want to get on that show so bad when I was a kid, but living in Massachusetts, I was a little bit too far away from California and Los Angeles. Yeah, tell me about it. So I, did I was not, in Cincinnati, Ohio. <laughs> yeah, we're basically in the middle of nowhere. So exactly. like, we didn't get to do any of that cool stuff. We did not get to go on you know, Wild and Crazy Kids. It just was not an option. Um, oh, but yeah, God, I want to go look up some, some videos on that. Like one of the things, one of the episodes that I'm playing around with right now is um, I got to find out where I have it written down. I have a bunch of stuff written down for it. But just looking back on these old video game shows, like whether it be Nick Arcade or this video challenge game. And there was also another show that I think it was the host of Video Challenge that uh, he used to do it where it was just, it wasn't like Game Pro TV, but it was something that it would they would just talk about know video games for half an hour and give you a bunch of secrets and like codes that you could use in in games uh i don't know that might be fun oh yeah for sure i love that kind of stuff um so (laughs) before but i can't like i told you it wasn't it's already an hour so um man it goes fast (laughs) it it, it does go fast uh well maybe we should probably uh pause there for for now but um you know again john you kind of mentioned a little bit of what you got uh, coming up, but anything else that people should keep uh, an eye out for and, and things uh, in terms of where they can follow you? Well, you can follow me at Dark1x on Twitter. And of course, you know, we're at Eurogamer.net mm-hmm. slash Digital Foundry, I guess, or YouTube.com slash Digital Foundry. And that's where I post the DF Retro stuff. And I try to do it every, it's a bi weekly series, but mm-hmm. occasionally when like a a convention comes up or something, it might get delayed, but you know, it's primarily a bi-weekly series. So, yeah, and it's, uh, please, if you're, again, if you're listening to this, make sure you subscribe to that stuff and, and, and support it just because, uh, this is kind of, I like to put what you're doing in the category of like crazy things. I wish I had the ability and the <laughs> expertise and knowledge to do, but you're doing it like way better than I could ever do it. So I just would want to, you know, support what, what you're doing. So again, for the audience, just make sure that you're, you know, supporting, you know, people that are willing to make content that you're going to be like interested in that you thought no one would ever do in a million years, but you're doing it. Oh man. Yes. Any support is very useful for convincing my boss to let me keep doing these retro videos because they are fun to make. (laughs) So like comment and subscribe is what you're saying. Yes, exactly. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Um, and you know, again, like you, you mentioned going to, VGX and stuff like that. Are, are you going uh, planning on going to anything else that that is coming up that people could keep an eye out for? Oh uh, yeah, I mean I'll I'll be at E three of course. Uh, nice. I'll be at Gamescom, the other EGX, uh, various other shows throughout the year. So I'm kind of here and there, usually at the shows. So if you see me, be sure to stop by and say hey. Awesome, and uh, I think this is going to be the first of you know based on your time. Uh, I'd love to get you back on here again. It, yeah, not, not just talk about to. more of this stuff, but uh, we're going to be doing some some more you know episodes, uh, just talking about Anytime. some of your favorite games. All right, deal. Um, all right, well, that is going to do it for this episode of Back in My Play. I really appreciate it. If you go to iTunes, you can review there, you can subscribe there, and. If you really like this show, you can get on board early because uh, the Patreon stuff is really going to be kicking up starting on May 1st. You can go to patreon.com slash back in my play. You can sign up on a per episode basis. That is going to be changing over to a per month basis. So don't worry if right now you support the show at a buck per episode, they'll just change to a dollar per month. But trust me, I'm going to give you some major reasons to support the show at $5 or more per month starting on May 1st. So again, you know, one of those things, if you really like this content, it means a lot to get your financial support to allow myself and uh, for people like John to continue to devote our time and uh, efforts into making more of it for you. So thank you so much for tuning in this week. We're going to be coming back next week with an awesome mailbag segment. And we're going to be talking about a lot of 32-bit craziness with uh, Greg Stewart. So ooh. Yeah, hope you guys can tune in next week. I'm probably guessing there's going to be some Sega Saturn stuff, but you can find out next week. Uh, Until next time, take care and get back to your games. 